And welcome to the Science Behind Science podcast. My name's Gregor, I'm 17, and I'm doing this podcast for my extended project at school. Each episode will consist of three sections. The first is called the Science Behind Science. In this, I explain how something works. The second section of each podcast is called A Voice Behind Science, in which I interview someone who has worked in the science industry. This season's episodes will feature Steve Agid a retired engineer who worked with NASA for 40 years. And the third and final section is called The Science Behind Films. In this, I take themes seen in films and discuss whether they relate to the real world. Now, in this episode section of The Science Behind Science, we'll be looking at the science behind black holes. So to fully understand what a black hole is and how they are formed, you need to know how stars create their energy. So, they use fusion reactions, which is when smaller nuclei fuse together to create bigger nuclei. Stars in particular use a reaction called the proton-proton chain reaction, where two protons, which are hydrogen nuclei, combine to form a nuclei called deuterium. Then the deuterium nuclei captures a proton, forming a helium nucleus. After another transition, a helium-4 nucleus is created, and during this reaction, two protons are released. Now, that may sound insignificant, but that this is why it's a chain reaction, because these two protons can then fuse together like the first stage and create deuterium. So that's why it's a chain reaction, because those two protons are reused and can restart the whole reaction. The helium nucleus can then be combined to create larger nuclei, and that's what the star burns. It starts burns hydrogen, helium, and heavier elements. So then that, that's how a star gets its energy. And with the formation of the black hole, it relates to, to that process. When a massive star collapses, its hydrogen fuel is running out, so the star starts to burn its helium which fuses into heavier elements still, but it starts burning through that, and then when the helium runs out, it gets onto heavier elements, and it's burning heavier, heavier, and heavier elements. And then we get to where it's burning iron. Iron doesn't fuse with anything else to create bigger nuclei, and that's where it gets to the end. So when it's burning its iron, the outer layers of the star begin to collapse and move inwards towards the centre. And then they sort of rebound and go out. It's like when you squeeze a sponge as soon as you let go. However, they don't just go back to the same position in the start. There's a massive explosion, which is called a supernova. And so when those outer layers are exploding and moving away from the star, some of the star remains. It's very, very, very heavy in a very small space. And because it's so small and heavy, it has a really, really strong gravitational pull. A gravitational pull so strong that pretty much nothing can escape its gravitational field and this leads to it sucking in objects around it so it gains mass and therefore if you have greater mass you have a greater gravitational pull and this forms a spe- something called a space-time singularity 
and the space-time singularity is when physics laws no longer apply to the black hole. But that is how a black hole is formed. Now, we can't... Now there's the question of, can we actually see black holes? No. No, we can't. We can't actually observe one with our eyes. And that's because because of this space-time singularity. And this is where... Because no general physics laws apply, pretty much no light can escape the black hole. And that's because... Light is bent by gravity. It can change its direction. But when you've got a massive gravitational field, it can behave very strangely. And pretty much, instead of going forwards, that light just turns around and goes back inside into the black hole, which is really strange. And so light no longer follows straight lines, and that's not really that normal. And so so the light warps, really, and it turns back around and goes into the black hole. And black holes are mostly found at the centre of galaxies, In the centre of our galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole, which is pretty crazy. You may be asking, what happens if I I went into one? And, well, the answer is, you'll you'll die probably quite a painful death. Pretty much what happens is, because the gravity is so, so strong, you'll shrink into a tiny, tiny little object. And that'll be it. You'll literally just shrink a lot. That's what people. That's what they think will happen if you enter into a black hole. But we're not really sure because no one's ever been in a black hole. So that is the end of this section of the podcast. I hope you understand what black hole is now. If you don't, feel free to get into contact at sciencebehindsciencepod at gmail dot com. there we are, that is the science behind a black hole. In this episode section of A Voice Behind Science, I'll talk to Steve Agid about the space shuttle missions and his experiences with them. So I'm joined with Steve Agid, who has had a 40-year career working with NASA. In this section, we're going to be talking about his experiences with the Space Shuttle program. Um, Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. When was the Space Shuttle program launched? Okay, uh, the Space Shuttle program uh, was launched at a very auspicious time, and that was during the mission of Apollo 16, when the astronauts... Uh, John Young and Charlie Duke were on the moon. While they were there on the moon, Houston relayed a message that the Congress had approved the space shuttle program. Uh, So that was in April of 1972. The first mission, uh, the first launch of a space shuttle was April 12th of 1981. And why a shuttle? Why would they use a shuttle and not a normal conventional rocket? Okay, the reason for the space shuttle program, as envisioned in the early 1970s, was to put a lot of different spacecraft of different sizes and shapes into orbit. The idea of the program, when it was originally envisioned, was to have a vehicle that would be able to launch all different types of spacecraft, very large spacecraft, for both civilian under NASA and for the Department of Defense and it would be able to launch in all different types of orbits. One of the space shuttles, uh, Discovery, was supposed to only be launched out of uh, Vandenberg uh, Air Force Base, that area 
on the West Coast so it could do polar orbits. And uh, many of the decisions were made to launch all the different types of vehicles uh, that were going to be used in space from the space shuttle. There wouldn't be any throwaway rockets anymore. And we were hopefully going to be getting the space shuttles to go into space about every two weeks, have one simple launch vehicle for the United States. That was the original idea way back in the early 1970s. What advantages did that bring then for, for the community? Okay, the big advantage of having a space shuttle is the enormous capabilities you have of having people in space. Now, when you uh, launch a vehicle in, into space, uh, the rocket has it. If everything goes well, that's great. If everything doesn't, there's nothing you can do about it. Now, there's been several missions uh, where uh, having people in space is a huge advantage. For example, the Hubble Space Telescope, when that was launched, it was launched from the space shuttle, and it was meant to be updated, serviced in space. Uh, the space shuttle uh, took it up in April of 1990, and we found out over the ensuing uh, weeks and uh, months that uh, the mirror wasn't made precisely correct. So in 1993, about three and a half years later, uh, we were able to adapt to that, make a correction, and now 30 years after the launch, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope is doing great. Now, if it was launched on a rocket, and put into a high orbit, we never been able to fix it. And then when you have a program like Hubble that's gone on for three decades, you know that technology increases dramatically. We've been able to upgrade the instruments in Hubble because we could actually go up and do something about it because we can reach it in space. That's the advantage of a space shuttle program, to have the humans there that can actually adapt to things immediately. Some change uh, that happens, you have people up there that can quickly adapt to that change and come up with ideas. And what disadvantages did the program bring? Well, the same advantages you have, if you look at it the other way around, are the same disadvantages. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you have a space shuttle that can support humans, well, that means it's going to be a lot more complicated. Uh, unmanned satellites uh, don't require air. They don't require pressure. Uh, they don't require everything you need to bring people back to Earth. So they're of course, a lot cheaper. So the advantages are you have capabilities. The disadvantages are that you're going to have a system that's a lot more complicated and it's going to be you know, a lot more difficult to do. And of course, you put human life at risk. How many different agencies were involved in, in the space shuttle program? Well, we have you know, thousands and thousands of different contractors that built different parts of the space shuttle, everything from the tires to the, you know, to the the, the wings and the structures of the, and different nations as well. Canada uh, built the big arm that we use to deploy spacecraft. Uh, lots of different uh, nations were involved in whatever we were launching into space. The European Space Agency, for example, the, uh, the Japanese Space Agency. Uh, we launched uh, vehicles uh, for the Russian Space Agency as well, part of the Mir Space Station and, of course, the International Space Station. So thousands of different companies and many different nations as well. What was the primary purpose of, of the well, space shuttle? All right, the primary purpose was to big, bring those big spacecraft into space. So you bring them in, you can also service them, you could also improve them, you could actually work with them. So the idea is, it was uh, the real name of the space shuttle program, even though everybody calls it, you'll notice the missions are called STS this and STS that. Yes. STS stands for Space 
transportation system. That was going to be the way you got stuff off the ground and into space. You'd be using the space transportation system. And whether that's a satellite, whether that's a, a big payload like Hubble, whether it's a piece of a space station, uh, whether it's a military payload, whatever it is, you're going to use the space transportation system. And it has three elements. One's the orbiter, the part that people refer to as the shuttle. One is the tank and one is the solid rocket boosters. But the whole thing together is the space transportation system. And that's how it was originally envisioned. How difficult was it to land a space shuttle? Okay, the landing, it would be very much like a commercial airliner. It would approach the runway at a much steeper angle than a commercial airliner, but it would land uh, with landing gear on a long runway. And we had runways throughout the world. Uh, we only ended up landing in three different places, uh, and that was at the uh, Edwards Air Force Base in California, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and we had one landing at the White Sands Space Harbor in New Mexico, which is in the southwest part of the United States. But we did have contingency landing sites around the entire world because we didn't know if there was going to be a problem. We had uh, landing sites, for example, in, uh, in Spain. We had some in Morocco. Uh, we had uh, you know, different uh, landing sites, and we had one in Senegal, for example. The idea is in case of an, an engine failure, uh, you know, as we were going into space, you had to have a, a place to bring that space shuttle down. So we had contingency landing sites throughout the world. And what did the mathematicians that were calculating where it should be landing, what different factors did they have to consider? Okay, one of the things uh, you have to consider is the speed we're going. In a normal, in a normal mission, just a, a normal mission, we're going at about 17,500 miles an hour, five miles a second. Uh, so we would do our re-entry burn about an hour before landing. And uh, once we do that, we are falling. You know, the space shuttle is not an airplane, so it doesn't have engines on the way back. Once we're going, we adjust our speed uh, by the way we point the shuttle through the atmosphere. We have uh, devices on the shuttle, uh, our elevons and ailerons that uh, can move and change direction like you have on an airplane. But we don't have power. You can't come down and say, well, I don't think I... I'm exactly lined up right. I think I'll go around again. No, you're going to fall and you're going to end up somewhere. So you have to figure this out well in advance. So before we land, uh, you don't decide to start landing and then decide, I sure hope the weather's good. You have to make sure the weather is good and it's going to be good for about an hour uh, before you do the landing. And uh, on the way up, it's the same thing. Okay, every part of the flight for the first few minutes you can return to the launch site. If you have a failure early in sight in the launch, uh, we have what we call an RTLS abort, which stands for return to launch site abort. So even though we're moving away from the space center, we still have enough velocity and altitude that we can come back and land back at the, the Kennedy Space Center again. If you have a failure slightly later, well, we don't have enough um, momentum to come back to the Kennedy Space Center, but you do have enough to perhaps land in Zaragoza, Spain. So you would land in that site. Then if you had almost, if you had a failure almost before orbit, you have a, a report, an abort scenario, which we call AOA, or, or abort once around, which means you come nearly all the way around the Earth before you have to come back down. So for every type of failure, there was an emergency uh, condition that you can land the shuttle somewhere safely. And that was the idea. And you'd have that planned before the launch. And how difficult was it for the pilots to land the space shuttle? 
Well, be best to ask them. They practice the landings all the time. In fact, on uh, some of the uh, longer missions, as the program went on, they had the laptop programs that they could actually practice while they were actually in space. So they they do uh, they did uh, the emergency, uh, or I should say, the uh, original landing tests were done by the space shuttle Enterprise, which uh, simulated the. Uh, landings of what a space shuttle would look like, and that was done before the very first launch of the space shuttle. After that, they use a Gulfstream aircraft, and that was equipped to make it seem like you're actually flying the space shuttle. Half the aircraft was set up to respond like a commercial aircraft, and then you can switch, and all of a sudden now it's flying like the space shuttle. So you could feel what that feeling was of coming in very, very sharply to the runway, and they would practice these things hundreds of times uh, to make that landing. And how many space shuttles were made? Was it just one or, or more? No, there were several. The first one to fly was the Space Shuttle Columbia. The second was the Space Shuttle Challenger. The third was the Space Shuttle Discovery. The fourth was the Space Shuttle Atlantis. And the last was the Space Shuttle Endeavour. Uh, the Space Shuttle Enterprise was built for what they call the approach and landing tests. So, as the program uh, was just starting, we wanted to see how that space shuttle would react, so we... Uh, launched it from a 747. It rode on the back of a 747 out in the uh, southwest part of the United States, disconnected from the 747, and then would actually fly towards the ground. So it was never meant to fly in space, but it gave the astronauts the feeling of what it was like to actually fly this vehicle. And it was a real vehicle. It wasn't a modified airplane. It was a real space shuttle, but it just had what we needed to do to practice the landings. And how big was the advancement in technology from the first space shuttle made to the last? Okay, that's the thing. You know, we started designing the space shuttle in the early 1970s. The last flight was 2011. So you're talking of a period of about 40 years. Uh, halfway through the good, good part of that, way through the program, uh, we went to something called the glass cockpit. And that was where we started um, changing a lot of the displays to be more, much more like computer displays than what you'd have in the airplanes of the time. So you had uh, more uh, visual displays than we had originally at the, at the very beginning of the program. We had uh, portable laptops computers called uh, portable uh, or PGSEs, uh, portable uh, ground computers that we would use uh, for uh, working with the, the various payloads we've been be taking into space. So you'd adapt to that technology fairly slowly because once you had a working space system, you didn't want to change things very, very quickly. It was a very slow, methodical change. But uh, for the payloads, for example, we developed, again, these very small, these uh, very general support computers, little laptops would help us control some of the smaller spacecraft we had uh, that we took into space. And how many missions did the program complete? Okay, we had 135 missions in total. Uh, there were uh, 28 missions by the Space Shuttle Columbia. There were 39 by the Space Shuttle Discovery. There were 10 by Space Shuttle Challenger. Uh, there were 25 by Endeavour and 33 by Atlantis. Why was it discontinued? The, uh, the primary uh, portion towards the end of the program was to launch the very big elements of the International Space Station. So the decision was made uh, in, uh, in that first decade of the 21st century that we would uh, be using the, the shuttle to complete that space station. So the last you know, very uh, many missions 
uh, would be all going to the International Space Station. Now, following the loss of the Space Shuttle Columbia in February of 2003, every mission following that for the next eight years, every mission except for one, uh, went to the International Space Station. The one that did not was the final servicing mission. Uh, that was Shuttle Mission 125 that went uh, to service Hubble. But every other mission went on to go to the International Space Station. So getting that space station complete, what NASA wanted to do is pivot to what it wants to do now, which is uh, doing the exploration of space. It wanted to get away from what we call routine space operations, even though I hate that term, but transporting people, transporting things into orbit, uh, servicing the uh, space station, transporting either new experiments, uh, transporting food or clothing. They want private industry to do that. They want to do a lot of more what we, I, I call big ticket items, going to the moon, going to Mars, doing things like that. Yes. So give the other companies uh, the chance to do the, uh, the, the more, I hate to call it again, I hate that word routine, but the, the routine space operations. Okay, and what were, what were your experiences with the space shuttle programs? Well, I worked with the space shuttle program for 14 years. That was from 1988 to 2002. I worked on about uh, nearly 60 missions of the 135. I was in the what was called the Peacock contract or the payload ground operations contract. Whatever we were sending up in the shuttle, our group was responsible for checking that out on the ground. So when we, uh, we got that in, we have a set of requirements. So you push this switch, this should happen. You push that switch, that should happen. So we would test that out in our, our test stands that we have uh, that mimic the shuttle. They don't look like the shuttle, but they act like the space shuttle orbiter does. And uh, we would check it out and say, oh, well, this was supposed to turn on when this happened. It didn't, didn't work. Okay, something's wrong. Let's find out what it was. So when all of that was fixed, we would say, okay, we're ready to put this device, whether it's the Hubble Space Telescope or any of the other missions, okay, we think it's working good. Let's put it uh, into the actual space shuttle itself and run the same set of tests. So we put it in what we call our site stand, which is our cargo integration test uh, equipment stand, which simulates the shuttle. Then if everything is fixed up and got everything working, then we would put it into the real space shuttle orbiter, do the same test, except now you're really doing it in the real space shuttle. So if we would, uh, if the astronauts weren't here, I was one of the people that substitute for them. If they were here, then they would do the test. And uh, when it went out to the, whether that, uh, sometimes we tested it at the pad, sometimes we tested it. Uh, in the uh, processing facility before it rolled out to the pad. But the idea is to give the people on the ground and the astronauts the confidence that everything we could test on the ground has been tested and checked out. There's no reason for it not to work in space because we've done everything we can to test it on the ground. A very insightful discussion there with Steve, which will continue in the next episode where he tells us about the logistics of getting a rocket into space. Now to the science behind films. This episode's segment is about the Matrix and the possibility of living in a simulation. In this
this episode's segment of Science Behind Films, we are going to discuss one of the themes explored in the 1999 film, The Matrix. In particular, the possibility that we are living in a simulation. In the film, our protagonist Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, realises that the human race has been enslaved by computers and has been plugged into the Matrix, meaning that the human race is living in a simulation. The word simulation is defined in the dictionary as the representation of the behaviour or characteristics of one system through the use of another system, especially a computer program designed for the purpose. We use simulations in everyday life all the time. For example, meteorologists use computers to simulate what the weather will be like in the future so they can make accurate weather forecasts. So, are we in a simulation? You could argue that we are in a simulation because the chance of the human race Earth and even the universe existing is so low it couldn't be made by chance. Every choice that your Stone Age relatives made, and their offspring made, and their offspring made, and theirs for hundreds or thousands of generations, all the way to you, is the reason why you are here listening to this podcast. And if one of those ancestors chose differently in any one of their choices in their life, then you wouldn't be here listening to it. Is it just luck? Or is it chance? Or have all these decisions been simulated to ensure that you are here? Alan Guth from MIT said that our entire universe might be real, yet still a kind of lab experiment. This refers to the idea that a whole universe was created by some kind of super-intelligent beings in the way that biologists breed colonies of microorganisms. Surely we would have experienced some kind of glitch or lag by now. It's like being in a first-person video game where the space behind you doesn't actually exist until you turn around. And if 8 billion people were playing this game, or in this simulation, surely there'd be a glitch or a crash. And as no glitches have been found yet, then either we are not in a simulation, or the technology of the beings that are running this simulation is far more advanced than we are currently. On the other hand, Max Tegmark, also from MIT, said that the universe functions on the laws of physics, a set of laws, like a computer algorithm. He's suggesting that these rules are too set in stone for our universe to not be a simulation. This makes sense, however the argument falls apart when you find scenarios where these laws are not followed, such as in space-time singularities. Also, if we are being simulated by beings that are from a different universe, with different physics principles, why wouldn't they use their own laws like we do when we create our simulations? However, how is it possible to create a simulation where the agents, the people in the simulation, are able to feel real? Surely this technology is impossible to create. Overall, it seems that every argument for or against the idea that we're living in a simulation is circular. I don't think that we'll ever find out if we're living in a simulation or not. But what about you? Feel free to join the debate by tweeting the podcast's Twitter account at sbehindspodcast or you can email me at thesciencebehindsciencepod at gmail.com. And there we are. We are at the end of episode one of the Science Behind Science podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode where we talk about finding new exoplanets, the logistics of a NASA mission, 
and if bullet time is real. Thank you, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank <music> you.